Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Pedagogue is committed to facilitating conversations that move across institutions and positions. So from grad students to junior faculty to emeriti, from community colleges to private universities, from historically black colleges and universities to Hispanic serving institutions, Pedagogue attempts to amplify voices. It's a space for teachers to talk about teaching and to talk about writing. Pedagogue is dedicated to building a supportive community that celebrates the work we do as teachers in our local sites, programs, and classrooms, and outside our classrooms. I want to highlight different local sites and locations where teaching writing happens. And I think what's really important here is the localization of these conversations. Community colleges should not be homogenized HSIs and HBCUs should not be homogenized. Each institution is complex. So one of the goals of this podcast is to bring in different teacher scholars working and teaching at different institutional sites to help show these complexities and nuances. In this episode, I talk with David F. Green Jr. about teaching at Howard University, a private research HBCU in Washington, D.C., We talk about writing program administration, writing assessment, labels attached to language standards, African-American rhetoric, and hip-hop. David F. Green Jr. is director of the writing program and associate professor of English at Howard University. He remains committed to serving historically underrepresented students and theorizing rhetoric and composition practice with an emphasis on race and difference. Dr. Green is also the editor of Visions and Ciphers, a writing studies textbook composed with an emphasis on culture and racialized language research and composition studies. He has published several articles on race, writing, assessment, and critical language use. David is currently the secretary for the Conference on College Composition and Communication. David, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about Howard. Howard University is a private research HBCU in Washington, D.C., the home of over 9,000 students. Howard also has a notable list of alumni, including Toni Morrison and Thurgood Marshall. Talk to me about Howard University and what it's like to teach there. In what ways do the traditions at Howard impact the writing classroom? And how does this also affect your work as a writing program administrator? Um, so as you mentioned, there's, there's, this, there's this long legacy, this strong kind of tradition, intellectual tradition, black intellectual tradition at Howard. And you can really feel it um, when you come on campus and when you're in the classrooms. I teach in Elaine Lock Hall, uh, the first African-American Rhodes Scholar and one of the, the major stalwarts of the, of the Harlem Renaissance. Sterling Brown is one of the the main architects for my department, the English department. He's often cited his work is shared around the classes and, and, and what we do. And it's also integrated into a lot of the programs. And so this, the tradition is kind of always there in ways that I find very refreshing in part because it gives a, a different model um, of how we might think about some of these disciplines. And so when I, when I begin to think about um, what should a writing class look like in this space at this institution for these students that want that, that kind of tradition, I often begin with what conversations are relevant to these students who are predominantly Black, but also for these students who come from a variety of 
of walks of life. Um, we have a large international population. Students come from Ethiopia and Egypt. They come from Nigeria. We have a, a large population of Caribbean students, students from Jamaica and Trinidad. And so you, you have this kind of international mix of students, as well as there are um, white students, there are uh, Hispanic students. And so you have this very, very kind of diverse population in which whiteness is not necessarily centered. Students, when we begin to talk about tradition and we talk about even just um, certain rhetorical practices in the classroom, students come to have expect something extra or, or something that, that connects them or connects us to that lineage. And so even on our syllabi and, and when we come to kind of talk about the program, you'll see those kinds of references and those kinds of scholars, Toni Morrison, um, is always present in, in many of the works we do, as well as a host of other writers and thinkers and, and intellectuals kind of working in that tradition. And so I found it kind of very fun, especially when I first got to Howard, because it, it allowed me to be flexible in ways that I hadn't thought about before. Meaning, instead of simply focusing just on the text, uh, bringing music into classes understood as vital and important, right? It's a part of many of our ceremonial traditions. It's a part of many of our kind of intellectual talks that occur on campus. And so the students are kind of geared for it. And so it allows us to kind of think and, and work in kind of very multimodal uh, ways. And so I, I enjoyed that, I appreciated that. Working as a WPA has been interesting as well. Um, because of tradition, Faculty have been uh, very receptive to some of the changes that I've made or argued for. They've been very receptive to kind of rethinking stances on Black English or other uh, language practices. Even terms like translingualism or linguistic difference have been kind of central to how we've started to think about what our program should be for today's student or for the modern of uh, the modern university and so it's, it's been exciting in, in that sense outside of um, just the kind of wpa work and the in the in the writing uh, program itself we have a host of other kind of programs as i mentioned like the sterling brown society and um, students have writing ciphers and, and other kind of programs in which they come to display their writing um, in various forms, whether it's poetry, reflective memoir writing, um, rap, or uh, even just kind of essay or traditional essayist writing. They've come to see it much more dynamically as a part of their lives, and I appreciate, I appreciate and enjoy that. And I think you know, I have to give credit to our faculty for that. So I want to read something from your article, Expanding the Dialogue on Writing Assessment at HBCUs. It's an absolutely wonderful article. Here's the passage. Even at HBCUs, where Black English traditions flow through ceremony, social events, and sports culture, see any HBCU homecoming, classroom discourse focuses on normative standards for writing. In other words, HBCUs push students towards social justice goals within the institutional context while also pulling them towards certain dominant white language norms within classrooms. I love this article, and I find this particular passage really interesting. So I want to hear more about this dynamic relationship, this kind of push and pull that you're talking about here. How do students at Howard respond to this tension between social justice 
and white discourse. And I, I think that has been one of the more interesting questions that I had came to as, as a writing program um, administrator when I, when I first got to Howard, uh, in part because the students themselves are pretty much free. Um, I think Howard is a place that emboldens and kind of bolsters um, students to really cultivate and think about their identities in relationship to their learning and in relationship to the curriculum. And so students are always having a kind of push-pull relationship with the curriculum itself, as they should and as we all do. We, we pick up certain things that we find valuable and hopefully we can put down certain things that do damage to our expressive identities, to how we think about ourselves, to maybe any insecurities we may have about our language practices. And so I've, I've been very proud of how students have pushed back on some of the invisible or uh, I use the word traditional or normative kind of practices that go along with an, a writing program, say it may be an outsized kind of emphasis on certain grammatical uh, learning practices or uh, as, as other scholars in the field refer to a skill and drill. Students take what they can, but as, as I mentioned, they're still very interested in their ciphers. They're still going to produce their raps. They're still going to speak Black English. You'll find, you know, fashion shows representing Afropolitanism term that I didn't come to until I got to Howard and it's like, oh, okay. So you are um, featuring your kind of, uh, your black identity, but you're also aware of, of all these other um, identities out there and how they may influence you. And I think that's a, a kind of great metaphor for the university, but also for the writing program itself. And so I, I, I value that. I think it was the work of the teachers that we needed to kind of begin to rethink some of these invisible assumptions and some of these entrenched beliefs about what is good writing or what it takes to kind of produce good writing. You know, what are we doing to our students' kind of linguistic identities? But for the most part, students have been dynamic, resilient, energized, and they've energized me uh, for the most part. And I think you'll, you'll find them kind of putting pressure on some of this tension in the classes. Um, I've had, you know, students will ask questions about certain readings. Students will uh, begin to question certain grammatical formations and, and, and cer certain linguistic performances. The idea, when I first got here, the idea of shade and how shade was kind of used, um, a, 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 an African-American term that meant throwing critique or, or providing a, a kind of subliminal um, critique or subliminal uh, diss of an idea or something of that nature. But you find it in their work. You know, they're, they're referencing how uh, W. E. Du Bois was throwing shade or <laughs> on Booker T. Washington or how um, in, this, in this essay, I see, I see the author as providing or throwing shade on this idea or this concept. And just, well, what do you do with that? It's not like they're linguistically wrong. And so we've had to kind of readjust our thinking uh, to, that, to that norm. Um, if students want to express themselves in this way and in a way that is critical and critically rich, how do we help them do that in a way that supports um, their identities, but also the kind of rhetorical choices they will have to make out in the real world. And so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It was looking at how students respond to these tensions um, was what kind of first drew me to the question. And then it became, well, how should teachers um, respond to those tensions um, as they appear in ways that better help students become the dynamic forces that 
you know, that we hope they will be once they leave the university. How do you mentor teachers or work with instructors to resist this pull toward white language norms in writing classes? Mm-hmm. I think the, the faculty has to want to do this uh, first and foremost. They have to maybe also have observed or see an issue um, with some of these tensions that arise in the classroom. Uh, first and foremost, and I, I applaud the writing faculty at Howard um, greatly because they were very receptive. We began with a series of conversations, conversations about language, but also um, about how a writing program works and what ultimately we hope to do for students. And, and one of the first conversations was after students leave our classroom, we have no control over how they will use language, how they will take some of our concepts and apply them in their other classrooms, or how they may see these concepts applied in their future professions or, or future work. And so what we want to do best is just provide them um, with the best information, but also strategies and techniques that we can that will help them be the best version of them that they can be. Um, And so the conversation really began there and a series of allowing writing faculty to ask questions, to try to bring in research. Um, We've also invited certain um, guest speakers to come in and speak about Black English and and so on and so forth. Bonnie Williams-Farrier came to talk to our program about about various aspects of Black English, also how Black English works rhetorically. Um, And I think that did a whole lot to show just how complex this can be. But the other thing I think she did very well was also talk about how novices or people first coming to this topic or concept of um, multiple Englishes or or, um, linguistic diversity as it appears in writing, how they can kind of apply this in, in very unique and simplistic ways. One way is to begin rethinking some of our assumptions about how grammar works or rather, you know, rather than a kind of static understanding of grammar and grammatical notions, what does it mean to begin to talk to students about grammars and what, and what that means and showing them um, how different Englishes are rule-based and how they work. And so that was a, a huge step uh, for us to begin other conversations about our grading policies and practices. I think a year or two later, we ended up revising the rubric that we used, one, to shift the language that we have around the grammatical section, but also to begin thinking about how we value style, how we begin to think about rhythm as a part of style, how we also begin to think about certain uh, vernacular expressions and how they may enhance style and so it, it was, uh, um, it's been a lot of work. I think we've come a long way. I think we have a, a, a much longer way to go. But if anybody ever asked, I would say it, it begins with having conversations with your faculty, um, but also a willingness um, on your faculty's part to begin to rethink assumptions that they've um, long held or have been taught. Um, I know I, I picked up certain things in, in my graduate program, as great as it was, um, that reinforce certain traditional notions uh, about writing it, and that just no longer seem to hold the same weight when I look at student writing today and what they can do. So your response sort of makes me think about how we can reimagine traditional assessment practices or rubrics that might emphasize grammar or some standardized notion of English and replace those elements with notions and concepts labeled, for example, rhythm or tempo or cadence, which offers more flexibility and elasticity with language and how we talk about language. 
These terms are obviously connected to musicality. You incorporate African-American rhetoric and hip-hop into your writing classes. Can you talk about what that looks like? Um, and, and so for me, African hip-hop comes out of African-American rhetoric. Uh, it's become a global phenomenon and many people from various rhetorical traditions can kind of lay claim to hip-hop because of the forms, because of rap, because of production, um, because of dance, style, and dress. But its beginning and its roots for me really comes out of the African-American rhetorical tradition, the, the idea of signifying, playing with language, uh, the way uh, folks have, have employed call and response in a variety of ways how we even begin to think about co communities and collectives and the kind of ciphers that, that form out of that. So what I kind of do different, and, and I think where my, my research kind of diverges from maybe traditional kind of hip hop studies work, uh, is that I'm, I'm very invested in what hip hop offers us and how we think about composing as, as we've just discussed, right? How does it offer new concepts that are fresh that allow us to begin to think about terms that we use like multimodal or begin to think about multimedia writing in very dynamic and different ways. Adam Banks mentioned this in his book, Digital Griots, um, but what does it mean if we think about our students as DJs of a tradition, if we think of ourselves as scholars, as DJs of a tradition, if we're always pulling on these various uh, discourses to help people kind of either understand or um, interpret different types of information, uh, we're really architects. And what does it do to kind of move back and forth between the past and, and the present in very dynamic ways? Uh, in terms, and for me, in terms of the classroom, this often takes a, a variety of different forms. Um, and so I don't just teach, say, a particular rap artist or particular rap songs, um, although I, I find that work valuable, uh, getting a deeper understanding of how certain rappers perform the tradition. But I'm always if interested in the conversation, um, in placing maybe older texts or older questions right up against newer questions or newer texts. How does the work of Black thought speak to the work of Ernest Gaines? Or how might we rethink, um, say, a, a Four C's Chairs addressed by Victor Villanueva or Gwen Pugh in relation to what Lauren Hill says in more current moments, Megan Thee Stallion, all right? So how do we place these folks in conversations in ways that are productive for students? Not just so they can, you know, engage or talk about their favorite artists, but how does, how does this create a kind of substantive conversation that we, can, that we can build on and that can help students gather a new understanding about how rhetoric functions, but also how they may rethink their own compositions in relation to what they've seen or heard or discussed in class. What are some questions you've been asking here recently about social and educational inequalities? And what kinds of directions are you being drawn to? Uh, my questions haven't changed so much. And I, I think that's the work of, of many of, of scholars working around race and issues of, of equity as well. Right, we've we've been talking about this stuff. We've we've been having these conversations, as, as uh, April Baker Bell mentions in, in her latest work, uh, Linguistic Justice. Right, these these things have have been occurring, and what I've begun to ask is, well, now that there's a increased attention um, around these issues, 
how can we uh, bring to light some of the more invisible and, and pernicious forms um, of discrimination that occur without us even just noticing or thinking about? How do, we, how do we get people to move beyond a kind of uncritical uh, relationship to tradition to begin to think about why we need to open up access and what it really involves and what it really allows if we do, if we do these things. And as I mentioned, having those long conversations with instructors um, around like Black English or even just certain assumptions that we have about what makes good writing or, or, or good reading um, for students. And so we, we, we begin to think about, well, why are the majority of, of texts that are selected, why do they come from particular authors? What does this say about how we view writing or what we're teaching students about writing, so on and so forth. But then it's, it also asks us to rethink at, at an administrative and an institutional level, the ways that language often you know, either elides or hides certain practices or forms of discrimination. Um, and that's, that's really, really what my interest has, has been um, most recently. But I think this connects beautifully to what people are doing in the community, how people are also thinking about social justice in, in very, very visceral forms, right? It all comes back to, you know, how are certain forms of discrimination damaging the development of our youth, either through fear or concern or having to hide certain parts of your identity for fear that, for fear of retribution or for fear of being excluded or excised just because you, you know, you are who you are. And so that's, that's really where my thinking has been going the last couple of years, but specifically with regards to rhetoric and how people use language to persuade, to cajole, to inform, to uh, question and so on and so forth. We've been doing this kind of work, but it requires a, an even increased spotlight. Um, so that's been the next question is how do we begin to spotlight these things, not only in our scholarship, but also in our teaching, but even in the requests and demands that we make of our administration, of our chairs or our deans, what kind of resources, what kinds of collaborations may be possible between universities between um, certain programs, between certain ways of thinking. I'd, I'd really like us to kind of push the envelope forward in that way. And I've had some discussions with Scott Weibel at University of Maryland and beginning to think about what that relationship could look like. I've had conversations with a variety of other scholars, uh, Christina Cedillo, uh, Tamika Carey, uh, a variety of, of folks, just to kind of begin talking about, well, what is it that we can do both inside and outside of the university to help people um, begin to just find their voices, but also begin to think about very, very critically um, some of these, as I mentioned, very pernicious forms of discrimination. I often steal a quote from, uh, from an activist out here in D.C. Uh, he works for Words, Beats, and Life, a hip-hop activist organization, Mazi Mutafa. But he says, you know, how do we begin to think about how we do good better? You know? <laughs> and I, that always rings with me. Like, how do we do good for our students and for ourselves and for our administration and for our universities? How do we do good better? Thank you, David, and thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.